Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert who can still make Buffy see cartoon birdies around her head, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar who called dibs on the last meatball mozzarella flavored hot pocket in the freezer, Noelle Croy. And we're here today to talk about Empty Places, the 19th episode of season seven. Empty Places aired on April 29th, 2003, and was written by Drew Z. Greenberg and directed by James A. Cotner. Still Pretty is a fully spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all of the show, go take care of that, and we'll stop and pick up some burgers or something. You know, road trip food. It's not a road trip. It's a covert operation. Let's go on patrol. In empty places, the residents of Sunnydale are causing traffic jams as they get the hell out of Dodge. Clem promises he'll come back for drinks if, I mean when, Buffy saves the world. He suggests that she skip town like the rest of them, but that's not Buffy's style. Willow and Giles brain control a cop for information on Caleb, saying they're investigators from Interpol. He doesn't give them much, but when they leave, two more cops come up and say there's a fugitive that's just shown up in Sunnydale. Sounds like a situation that needs some justice. At the hospital, Buffy and Willow visit Xander. Buffy grabs Willow's research on Caleb and skips out, much to Willow and Xander's disappointment. Back at the house, Anya and Andrew try to train the potentials to kill the uber vamps, but the potentials are not feeling terribly hopeful about their chances in this apocalypse. Buffy comes home but doesn't want to answer questions about Xander, so she hands the packet Willow and Giles got off the police to the potentials to paw through. Try to find anything that looks like Caleb. His church, his ring, his ability to render a slayer useless in just one punch. Kennedy apologizes, but Buffy says it's okay, then goes off to the high school to get her things, since school is canceled now. Caleb is there waiting for her. He taunts her a bit and asks after Xander before attacking and tossing Buffy through a window and leaving her there on the floor. I'll see you soon, little lady. Back at Summer Central, Dawn has made some possible connections to Caleb in the paperwork, finding a mission that has been abandoned for a while, which has the mark from Caleb's ring on the wall. Giles sends for Spike. I have a mission for you. Oh, really? Because, you know, sometimes our missions end up with you trying to kill me. Giles sends Spike out to check on the mission and tells Andrew to go with him. Meanwhile, Faith decides that the potentials need to burn off some energy and takes them to the bronze to dance the stress away. Buffy comes back to find Giles in the dining room. He tells her he sent Spike away with Andrew and Buffy is not pleased. They argue for a minute, but Buffy walks away and asks where Faith and the girls are. Giles says they went to the bronze and Buffy leaves. Caleb returns to first Buffy and tells them that the trap has been set and Buffy's going to walk right into it. Meanwhile, back at the bronze. This is so cool. Buffy would never let us do this. At the bronze, the cops catch up with Faith, but she's not interested in going back to jail. And for a slayer, that's an option. Unfortunately, all the cops have homoutitis, and one of them pulls out a shotgun. And jeez, that escalated quickly. Faith goes with them, struggling a little, but only until they get outside, where she decks one of them, and then the rest pull their guns on her. She fights while the potentials take down the cop left behind to keep everyone inside. Buffy walks in at the end of the action as Faith takes down the last dirty cop and the potentials come out from the bar. Buffy sends the girls home and stays to yell at Faith for not keeping the girls safe. How safe were they when you dragged them off to meet Caleb? How safe was Rona or Amanda or Molly? Back at the house, Robin shows up for the meeting Buffy's called and stops to talk to Faith on the porch. They spar verbally for a moment, and then Xander comes home from the hospital. Faith walks away. Meanwhile, Andrew and Spike arrive at the mission and are set upon by attack monks. 
One of them has the mark from Caleb's ring burned into his face. Spike tries to talk to him, asking for his help fighting Caleb. The monk shows them a secret room that Caleb found, where he found an ancient inscription he didn't like and burned the monk, who ran and hid while Caleb killed the rest of the monks. Spike reads the inscription. It is not for thee. It is for her alone to wield. Back at the house, Buffy presents her plan to the group. They're going to go back to the vineyard. She realized that Caleb's making all this noise about the high school and the seal, but that's not where he's camped. The real power is at the vineyard, and she wants to go. The rest of the group doesn't agree, and everyone argues, with no one taking Buffy's side. They accuse her of being reckless, and Kennedy suggests that maybe Faith should be in charge now. Buffy argues, but one by one, Buffy's friends all turn on her. Faith, Giles, Willow, Anya, Xander, but worst of all, Dawn. I can't stay here and watch her lead you into some disaster. And you can't stay here. Buffy goes out the front door and Faith follows, saying she doesn't want this. But that's not the conversation that Buffy is interested in having. Whether you wanted it or not, their lives are yours. It's only going to get harder. Protect them. Lead them. All right, Noelle. So here we are, Empty Places, one of the most notoriously hated episodes in all of Buffy for probably a number of reasons. There are some things in here that I think are good. We're going to get to that. But I was curious about what your response was to this episode. I find this episode pretty unremarkable, which is confusing Mm -hmm. to me because it should be really powerful, especially with that ending. Um, But the whole thing really just leaves me feeling kind of meh. Yeah, I can definitely understand that because I I think that narratively what they're trying to do is to bring in this dark moment for Buffy. Um, That is a very, very cool thing. That is a great idea. And we end on this huge punch. But the sacrifices of character that we made in order to get there kind of fumble that moment. So it's just like not as powerful as it could have been. It feels like it comes kind of out of nowhere too like Mm -hmm. i'm i i don't know we'll get there when we get there but i'm just sort of like really (laughs) yeah yeah it's always it's always felt off to me um but yeah one of the things i wanted to start talking about though um that i really do like about this episode which of course started in uh the previous episode um is xander's eye is the the like we're finally having real lasting irreversible um consequence for all of these fights and all of this danger that we're always going through i mean through seven seasons almost the entire run of buffy like very few people especially in our core group of scoobies get permanently irretrievably hurt i mean at the end of every episode if one of our main cast has been i don't know turned into a demon or a cave girl or a copy of themselves we always return back to ones at the end we always reset and everything is okay not much is ever irretrievably lost aside from joyce and tara i mean even angel comes back from the dead slash evil slash hell you know Mm -hmm. quite a few times i mean buffy died twice you know Mm -hmm. Like nothing is really, really permanent. But finally, we're doing something here with Xander. He lost an eye and we're sticking with that. Like Mm -hmm. it's gone, you know, and we need to deal with that. And that makes for, I think, some really good storytelling to have actual real consequence, um, you know, within the story, I think is is really good. Um, 
in our storytelling in general, also, we like very rarely have a disability on screen unless it's turned into some kind of like daredevilish superpower, you know. So I kind of like that we have somebody who has experienced like a physical disability and we are allowing that to just be, you know, mm-hmm. um, culturally, I think we fear disability like more than maybe death. You know, um, we will tell stories about death all the time. Um, we're obsessed with death, you know, in a lot of ways. We don't like to talk about it in our real lives, but in our stories, we'll talk about it, you know. Um, but disability, we usually don't touch unless we're going to like immediately fix it, turn it around and make somebody quote unquote whole or will mine inspiration from it, do the daredevil thing where we make it the source of a superpower. Um, we don't want to look at disability or deal with it or realize that people can still be completely whole, even if something you know, has gone wrong with their physical body. Um, So, I mean, I like this, you know, it's both real consequence and also a a visibility of human experience that we often don't look at. Yeah. Disability for heroes, I think, is the is the (laughs) difference, right? Because disability shows up all the time for villains and it's always Mm -hmm. the explanation for why this person is the way they are, you know, why they're so evil or what, you know, whatever, whatever. But what's interesting to me about Xander and his eye is that Xander is the only one in the group who is just human, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Dawn Dawn is mystical. Buffy is mystical. Mm -hmm. Willow is a hell of mystical. I mean, everybody's yeah. got, you know, Anya, everybody has something that makes them special or magical mm-hmm. in this otherworldly kind of way. Right. And mm-hmm. Xander is just a guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's almost this extra weight to this, this injury for Xander because mm. he's not physically remarkable mm-hmm. um it hits harder or at least it's supposed to it's definitely set up that way yeah it definitely has a weight i think that a lot of the other illness and injury on the show does not have mm-hmm. um at least i don't remember i don't remember us making a big deal out of illness or injury in that way before Mm -hmm. maybe tara when glory brain yeah for a few episodes but then we of course reverse that right Right. you know because we don't we don't want to live with that right um and and tara is still magical Mm -hmm. there's still she's she still has that connection to magic that xander doesn't yeah. So it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting, um, I think it's interesting and noteworthy how weighty that loss feels, maybe in part because Xander is so mundane mm-hmm. and kind, and that is kind of the point of Xander, that he is so mundane, yeah. Um, yeah. which I say with no judgment. I mean, he himself makes the joke about when there's a party at this house, I usually have to fix something. <laughs> You know, that's his role. That's he's, his he's superpower. Like rooted yeah. in mundanity. You know, I mean, 
sure. And Andrew, Andrew appreciates the level of his skill, you yes. know, in fixing all of those windows and making them look just seamless. Which I quite like is that he has capability. You know, he has real capability and like a real use, but it is it is very very anchored in the mundane. Um, and and to see him as a you know heroic figure as part of our core group of heroes, um, and that he is able to um, you know to have this experience that we run through this experience with him that we allow him to I mean through the run the next uh, three episodes you know but still right. uh, that we allow him to maintain. We don't reverse it. We don't try to make it, you know, we don't give him a glass eye and say it's going to be just fine. You know, Mm -hmm. we let this sit. We let we let ourselves live with the a permanent injury that comes from this kind of activity, mm-hmm. um, which I think is is a good thing. Like I like having that. It gives it gives the story weight. It is one of the things that I actually really like about season seven um, is that we are kind of playing um, for keeps in a way mm-hmm. that I think that previously we have not. Um, one of the things I also, uh, you know, I okay, I like it in concept. I don't like it in execution. Um, like story-wise, is this dark moment for Buffy? Um, we have this dark moment, which is coming at the right time if you're talking about the season arc. You know, um, right before the climax, there's this dark moment, and it feels like all is lost, like everything has fallen apart. And from that, we see our hero pull up. You know, um, they they find resources within themselves that we didn't know that they had that they didn't know that they had, um, and then they end up having, you know, victory. And it just makes that victory so much sweeter because it was so hard to get because it required so much. And because there is, you know, in a good dark moment, also real loss that comes along with that victory, that it's not just a clean, easy sweep. Um, And this, I think, is why so many uh, stories have dark moments. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, the problem here is that in order to create that dark moment, we have sacrificed our characters almost to to a one i think maybe except for faith um and that cost especially with dawn where it doesn't even feel like that is actually dawn you know um mm. it's just too high a cost we're paying too high a cost for this dark moment and that undercuts the power of that dark moment if we found a way to make this happen while not sacrificing who our characters are and the relationship that they have with Buffy and all of that, like if there was a real reason for it, um, it might make more sense. But to me, it just it doesn't work. Hmm. It doesn't work for me either, but it doesn't work for me in a different way. <laughs> OK. Uh-huh. <laughs> it doesn't work for me because I think the end of this episode is supposed to be devastating. Mm-hmm. Or at least it's supposed to be a big emotional blow as the camera follows Buffy out of the house. Like mm-hmm. We're supposed to be with her. We're supposed to feel her loss or betrayal or whatever. But I'm not sure that the emotional setup is there. Mm-hmm. I end the episode wishing that we had shifted the focus to faith. Oh, mm-hmm. and I can't figure out if this is a television production thing or just a me thing. <laughs> I, can't, right. I can't, you know, because I don't know. I I start I start this episode. We're we're watching Buffy in downtown Sunnydale, pointedly walking into the mm-hmm. center of town against the flow of traffic. Right? She's the mm-hmm. loner. She's doing the opposite. Blah blah blah. 
And the feeling that I get from all of this is detachment. It's yeah. not so much, you know, Fleetwood Mac's go your own way blaring in the background as it is me wanting to nudge Buffy and tell her to pay attention to the people around her. Mm -hmm. She visits Xander and Willow in the hospital, but it's all thanks for the file of info. Bye. Like she's not going to stay and play card games or even chat. She doesn't seem particularly invested mm -hmm. in them and their experience and what's going on. And yeah. Willow and Xander are noticeably disappointed. I mean, Willow mm -hmm. in particular, it was like, you know, she's like, oh, we were going to like, we were going to hang out. Like we were going to attend yeah. to the, the loss of, you know, this moment. You know, we were, we were going to address this as an emotional right. moment. And Buffy's, you know, all business. Bye. See you later. And I'll she, shut down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's so she's so shut down. She's so detached. And then she arrives back at the house and Dawn naturally wants to know how Xander's doing, what the prognosis is, what the doctor said, you know, on and on and on. And Buffy is completely shut off from any of that. She doesn't even acknowledge mm -hmm. that Dawn is worried about Xander. It's mm -hmm. all here's the file. Here's the info. Here's what we know. So then later when Faith confronts Buffy about not caring about the potential's feelings or learning their names, I'm completely mm -hmm. with Faith. Mm -hmm. And what I find fascinating is that Buffy refuses whatever magical darkness impregnation the first watchers want to do to her because taking that into herself would mean losing some of her humanity. That's yeah. the explanation she gives. Mm -hmm. But her focus on the mission seems to be separating her from her humanity anyway. Right. So is this a, you know, is this a, we were doomed all along, you were going to lose your humanity because of the magical darkness that the shadow men put in you, or you're going to lose your humanity because you, you know, detach from everyone in the name of, of the mission. I mean, Buffy explains what she's doing to the group and takes for granted that leadership is incompatible with thinking about others' feelings. Mm -hmm. And that is some toxic bullshit. Yeah. I mean, once again, we've set up this emotional weight on Buffy, and I think we're supposed mm -hmm. to feel bad for her or at least feel with her. But by mm -hmm. the time that confrontation with the group comes around, I'm just relieved. I'm right. relieved mm -hmm. that we're talking about everybody else's feelings in this and what's going on, um, which is not to say that that confrontation is great. I don't think it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Willow in particular is slightly off base. Um, it doesn't strike me as a judgment issue with Buffy mm -hmm. so much as an empathy issue because Buffy is expecting yeah. people to follow her without any consideration for them and their needs. And that is not how you lead. I mean, it's certainly not yeah. how you lead well. I think people do mm -hmm. try to lead that way. Mm -hmm. um, being the slayer is... Uh, it's a thing, but it doesn't give you the skill set to be the boss. <laughs> right. And Buffy, Buffy, I, see, I think everybody, I think everybody's right when they say, look, just because you're the slayer doesn't mean you know how to do yeah. this. Um, right. Mm -hmm. And I get the sense from the show, from the way this is set up and from the way it's shot and what the music is doing and all of that, mm -hmm. that I'm supposed to feel like, oh, this is a huge blow to Buffy. This is a betrayal. And I'm like, actually, <laughs> like, actually, 
y'all mm-hmm. have a point. You know, Giles is like, yeah. she's like, why did you make this decision without me? And he's like, you were not here. Like decisions mm-hmm. have to be made. So yeah. I don't know. I I mean, so like I say, I don't know if this is a storytelling misstep or if this is just a me and what I'm, you know, no, <laughs> file I th- under I think like you're... what my brain notices. But right. I'm just like, oh, thank God we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, Buffy is not super qualified to be doing what she thinks she's doing. Like she talks about leading the group, but I don't see her being a leader at all, really. Well, she went to the full metal jacket, right, school of leadership, you know, toughen them up, be mean, be hard, you know, all of those things. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're definitely onto something. I think also the idea that Buffy wants this, like part of this betrayal, this whole setup is the idea that Buffy desperately wants to be the leader of these people. Mm. When in reality, after Xander gets hurt, after all of this happens, like, um, I would have rather seen Buffy quit, right? Mm. That Buffy is like, there's another Slayer here. Mm-hmm. I can't handle all of this. This is too much for me. I, you know, Xander could have been killed. You know, he lost his eye. Real shit is happening. Um, you know, and that maybe like the questions that they have that are legitimate If Buffy lost her confidence and had a crisis of confidence here, that is another kind of dark moment that structurally would work really, really well. And her finding her confidence again, her leaving and saying, I give up because hasn't she for all of these years been like, I am the one I am the slayer. There's nobody else to do it. Faith, you know, has Mm -hmm. lost her connection and is not reliable for it. I can't rely on her. I can't let her do stuff. I have to do this. I have no imagine doing a job that you hate that much for seven years and then something gets seriously fucked up and then you see somebody who you think may be able to handle it Mm -hmm. i mean wouldn't there be that desire to just pass that on you know and then when we have faith in this circumstance who's like uh this isn't no you know like i'm not ready for this either you know then you see how heavy the head is that wears the crown you know how difficult all of that is but we see it through another perspective so I think that you're absolutely right. I think all of this is contingent upon a that we agree with the way that Buffy's been doing things. I think textually we're supposed to. We're supposed to see Buffy when she comes in. And she's like, "I got a plan. Let's run back in there." And everybody's like, "No, you know, that's the plan she comes back with, mm-hmm. right? You know, after she's had a crisis of confidence, after she's left, you know, when she goes back to save them, which is coming up, of course, in the next episode. Um, I think that we. We need to have that moment, I think, be Buffy generated rather than externally generated. And the thing is, is that even with that, like, yeah, there are some points here, but also there's just a lot of stuff that just doesn't feel like these characters. I mean, Giles turned on Buffy and betrayed Buffy trying to kill Spike. Um, And yeah, he's right about decisions need to be made. And no, I'm not sending Spike off to die, you know, but also like when he betrayed her and helpless he was sorry and he worked mm-hmm. to earn back her trust. Like this asshole that Giles is in season seven is just useless. He's just there to betray her. And that is all he does. That is not who Giles has been, you know, traditionally throughout this story. Uh, Willow just sits there. She doesn't actively betray Buffy aside from saying she won't defend her, but she doesn't stop anything. And that's also not Willow. You know, it's 
weak and Willow is not weak. She's a lot of things. Weak is not one of them. Um, Anya's whole speech. Since when did Anya give a fuck about anything but Anya? Like from yeah. her perspective, <laughs> yeah. if Buffy gets killed, one of these other potentials is going to become the Slayer and then that Slayer will protect her. And I think she would be like, you know, it's not my ass on the line. Sort it out yourselves and just sit there and eat a cracker. You know, this you're not better than us is like an interesting argument, I think would have come better from maybe one of the potentials. Um, But it's not an Anya argument. Yeah. I actually really like that speech, but not Mm -hmm. from Anya. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's like, why why is Anya suddenly so invested? You're not better than us. You're luckier than us. When does she think that being the Slayer is a lucky thing? Sharp, sharp knives, brutal death. Yeah. Like, you know, that's <laughs> not lucky. Yeah. From from Anya's perspective, that's not lucky. She is there to be protected. And if Buffy dies, yeah, you know, she kind of likes Buffy or whatever. But another Slayer will rise to take care of her who is already in the house. And, you know, is one of these girls. Yeah. So, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other, as far as she's concerned. Um, then we've got Xander, you know, um, he lost his eye. He's experiencing hurt and trauma. Um, I don't find his response really out of line. It's just kind of not like Xander. Like Buffy is his hero. And I, I think the response to something like this is going to, you know, can come from a number of spaces. Either he's going to feel like this is Buffy's fault, maybe blame her for putting him in danger. But we just had that speech from him, the, you know, mm-hmm. like last night, you know, where he was like, you got to believe in Buffy. You got to know she cares about you. And yeah, bad things can happen. Bad things can happen. Xander went into that fight. Xander is a grown ass man going into that fight. The fact that he lost his eye, I don't think Xander would see that as Buffy's fault. Um, so, you know, I don't see this necessarily as like, you know, a, a, a serious break of Xander's character, but just not terribly consistent, you know. Um, but Dawn, Dawn, she's the worst of all of it. She's the one who kicks Buffy out of the house. It's my house, too. I mean, are you kidding? She says this to the sister who literally died to save her and has rescued her over and over and over again and whose death she experienced for what was it 168 days 100 or 167 yeah. days 168 tomorrow yeah, whatever it was um she knows what it's like to live without buffy and she doesn't want that so um so i think that like dawn's betrayal is probably the most out of character um faith i think is perfectly aligned like faith is right this is absolutely faith would be like i don't want this i just want to have a discussion which i think is completely reasonable yeah um you know and being in charge is something that faith is not necessarily wanting to do she just wants to be there in the fight and she's like she doesn't mind scrapping but she wants to know why she's scrapping which i think is a completely reasonable request Mm -hmm. um And Rona, I really understand. I mean, she's a kid. She came there for protection, not to fight. And she feels let down by Buffy and forced into a space she's not prepared for. And when she's, you know, watched kind of a few of her friends die. What is she, 17? That's not easy, you know? Um, I think she is the best drawn of the potentials. Um, But I hate that ding dong, the witch is dead thing. And then Dawn snaps at her. Like, Rona is business, you know? (laughs) Like, Rona is the one who is 
got her feet on the ground and she's looking around her and she's analyzing the situation and seeing that this is not cool, you know? Yeah. Um, but she doesn't, she doesn't have that gloater kind of mean girl thing to her. And so to have her do that and then have Dawn snap at her like that, um, did not care for that. Like all of that just felt off. So for me, like the, the cost of this dark moment comes with this breaking of a lot of characters, many of whom are, are long-term and beloved. And it just feels forced and wrong to me. Yeah, it makes me feel like I missed something in the middle. It makes me yeah. feel like there's a whole emotional journey that we mm-hmm. need to go on with all of these people. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I think if we wanted to get here with everybody, we could. But mm-hmm. I think that that hurt needs to be built up and expressed mm-hmm. more than it right. is um mm-hmm. it's rushed yeah yeah mm-hmm. well and i guess that that i mean that's one of the drawbacks to having so many characters mm-hmm. because there are yeah. there are a ton of people here <laughs> i mean to- did you see that living room oh my god i actually love that it that was I love like those- 30 people yeah. they are violating code yeah, i am certain with the number of people living in that house yeah yeah, it's it's the problem. Um, yeah. But we needed to go on more of that emotional journey with everybody, I think, yeah. rather than take for granted that this is going on behind the Buffy scenes. Quit. Apparently. We have been building Buffy wanting to quit for seven years. Prophecy girl. I quit. Yeah. I'm 16. Yeah. I don't want to die. Right. Yeah. Here I'm 22. I am not prepared to lead. Like, yeah. Had we done that as a bookend thematically to Prophecy Girl at the end of season seven, I think that would have tied up a lot of of kind of movement in Buffy's character that we have been experiencing all the way through. Yeah. Buffy never wanted this. It doesn't make you better than us. It makes you luckier than us. And Buffy's like, lucky? Yeah. Shall we go through the litany of bullshit that I have experienced because of this? You know, like for her to, for one of the potentials to call her lucky and for her to be like, "Ah, that's it. That's the end of this. Yeah. This is not like, listen, that's what you think this is about. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's, an unexplored piece of Buffy's mm, mm-hmm. leadership arc mm-hmm. that I talked about, I alluded to it a little bit last week when Caleb kills a couple of the potentials. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we've talked about Xander's eye. This is, you know, this permanent, this permanent mm-hmm. damage that's happened because of this plan. Well, also a couple of the potentials died yeah. and, Buffy had been saying all along, you know, some of us are going to die and we have to be willing to, you know, accept Mm -hmm. that and whatnot. But then if we had turned around and had her grapple with the real, you know, like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, I was telling the truth when I said some of us are going to die. Some of us are not going to come back from this. That, like, the almost the emotional toll Mm -hmm. of being in that role on her, like, I think we could have yeah. explored that more, too. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say, like, we have to be strong and we have to fight mm-hmm. and we have to understand that not all of us are going to make it out alive. But then to then to make the plan 
go charging mm-hmm. in and have that be the case that some of us yeah. don't make it out. Oh, mm. shit's getting really real now. Exactly. Like there's so much opportunity here and there's so much that has been built up for years and years and years for you to to kind of play on that to create this huge betrayal, it just feels cheap and unearned. Yeah, it's like they wanted to do this moment this way and then wrote it in <laughs> rather than Yeah. You know, like But you're also yeah. Yeah, like oh, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be devastating if everyone turned on Buffy and kicked her out? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. maybe, but you gotta set right. it up differently. Well, and also the thing is, is that what you're doing is you're putting your protagonist once again, which we've been doing a lot with Buffy over the last two seasons in this passive space, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of Buffy making this choice and being like, you guys are better off without me. I need to leave. I cannot be responsible for another death. I just can't do it, right? You Mm -hmm. can completely understand that, that crisis of confidence, that that sense that you are not prepared for the task with which you have been presented, you know? Um, And I think that most of us can really sympathize with that position where you just feel like you're being asked to do something that you are not prepared to do. And the consequences of that are the deaths of kids, Mm-hmm. You know, young girls, young girls who are like her, you know, when she was 15 years old and doing the Lolita nonsense for Angel. You know? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that the the passivity, um, the victim, you know, uh, like situation with with Buffy, where this is not something that she is doing. This is something that is happening to her, um, I think is a mistake. You want your protagonist to make these choices. Choices define what characters are, what they do within a story. Choices are everything. And for Buffy to do this without a choice, you know, is something that I think kind of deflates a lot of the momentum that you've had building up in this season. Um, I want her to quit. Mm. She tried to quit before. She couldn't quit. Now she's going to fucking quit. And that's mm-hmm. it. And um, and I want her to feel relief. You know, I mean, and then, of course, you know, as we're going to see, have the conversation with Spike and then realize you know, what has to be done, all of that kind of stuff, and return to leadership, knowing that she can do it, knowing mm-hmm. that she knows now how to do it. Um, I think that that would have been a really good story. It's not the story that we get. Um, one of the stories that we do get, though, which I absolutely love, um, is that we actually get um, a feminine redemption arc, which does not happen a lot. Uh, it is very rare to see a female character who is allowed to be fully flawed, you know, and yet survive long enough to be redeemed. I mean, this happens with men all the time. We cannot get enough of like a Tony Soprano or a Walter White <laughs> or whatever. But this doesn't generally happen with women. Women are either good and perfect and allowed to live as long as they live within the rules and do what they're told. Or if they are not, the cost of not being perfect and pure is traditionally, you know, like death. Like, you know, often like that's that's what gets a a female character killed. Um, But Faith actually gets a redemption arc. I mean, we don't get to see it happen. 
because she's just absent yeah. in prison and we kind of forget that she exists during most of this time. Um, but she's pulled, you know, back through Angel Town into Buffyville. And now here she is, you know, um, she's here with full recognition of what she is while still being allowed to be sex positive, ready to party. Uh, she knows what she's done. She's willing to atone, but she's not laying down and letting anyone kick the shit out of her. She's not kicking the shit out of herself for what she's done. Um, she's not pure by the patriarchal purity standard that's set out for women culturally, which is often what we make female characters live to. You know, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes crave a nonfat yogurt after. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um <laughs> And yet she is allowed to both live and be heroic. And it's fucking subversive. And I love it. I mean, Buffy as a character is not that feminist, but I would argue that Faith really is. I mean, she's able to pull for the good guys now without losing her grit, her attitude, her intelligence or her autonomy. This is an incredibly rare thing. And it's just one reason why Faith is an amazing character. But I love that we get this. My favorite bit of Faith in this episode is when... Buffy is trying to argue with her and she says, you have no idea what I'm feeling. And I'm like, oh, hell yes. Like Faith Mm -hmm. advocating for herself in all of this and just like the the points that Faith is able to make to Buffy are Mm -hmm. really excellent. Really, Mm -hmm. really excellent. You know, the like you can't you cannot just wail on these girls. You have to take care of them as well. Yeah. Um, Learn their names. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, mm-hmm. it's so biting, but it's so true. I, le- I mean, it's a good cut. Yeah. 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 It's very, very true. And I love her. You know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Like she knows mm-hmm. she's not a leader, but she's yeah. going to do the best with what she's got in the moment without the certainty that Buffy seems to have. Faith mm-hmm. is excellent. Faith is excellent. I love it. And I mean, she's not without her problems, but she's mm-hmm. she gets to do a lot because she doesn't occupy that protagonist space, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. She doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the titular character. Although I would watch Faith the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> like, oh, I would, I would my God, would I watch that, that show? show. Um, would I watch that? I'm very sad that we missed her redemption arc. I would have loved if we had gone through that experience with her the way that we do with Angel all the time, the way that we do with Spike, you know. Um, walking deeply through that redemption arc would have been really, really nice. We don't get that. But I love what we get. Like, yeah. uh, the fact that we have a, a woman who is allowed to be all of the things that faith is, you know, and be allowed to live and be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Like I just, you know, I'm trying to think of other, and there are other examples out there, um, especially more recently, we've had more of these stories, but yeah. for a long time, like we just don't get those stories. A woman fucks up or, you know, goes on the, goes the wrong way. And she dies. Like, like last night I watched Thelma and Louise, you know, mm-hmm. and there you go. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they they disobeyed and they died for it, you know, and that's just how that works. But they, um, Yeah. And it's uh, that's I mean, that's another that's another interesting mm-hmm. conversation. That's a about, whole other yeah, it's a, discussion. There's exactly. a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's but that's semi related to, mm-hmm. you know, what I was talking about with Faith last time about you know yeah. written by a man itis of like mm-hmm. yeah but with Thelma and Louise like they die but it's empowering and you're like ah uh, 
Ooh, like, I don't know. No. I don't know. I don't think that is. Also, Thelma and Louise was written by a woman. Directed by men. Directed. Produced by men. Yeah. Very heavily influenced by men. But at least written by a woman. So there's something. Yeah, it's a very, um, it's a very masculine story, I think, in the way that Faith's story is a very masculine story. But that's, I mean. Right. That's, that's, you know. Cultural studies PhD. No, exactly. <laughs> it's a it's a first step. I there dig it. I'm just saying. I just dig yeah. it. Um, we and also I get love, a lot of. For the record, I love Thelma yes. and Louise. That movie. Uh, yes, rocks. I do too. I really enjoy <laughs> Thelma and Louise. It was very very interesting watching it last night and then coming in and kind of looking at Faith's uh, feminine redemption. You know that she is allowed to both fuck up. And live. Yeah. You know, um, which is something that we don't get well, a lot with women who make hell. this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the bar is in hell if that's the, you know, that's like what we're celebrating. Yeah. That like, oh, you made a mistake and you didn't have to die about it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, you. you know what? You 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 get met where you are. Oh, right? Yeah. You know, that's where we start making that climb. Oh, 100 yeah. percent. I mean, and that's why mm-hmm. that's why breaking it down is so much fun when you realize, oh. Yeah, yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, that these are the cultural stories that we are told about ourselves. Yeah. You know, um, and and yeah, uh, the fact that she doesn't die is kind of awesome uh, yeah. and, and really, you know, subversive, especially for, you know, this time period. Yeah. Um, one of the things, too, that I actually do like about this episode are the the fun little pairings. That yeah. We get. Yeah. Which might just be a television storytelling thing as in we have a ton of characters and only so much time mm-hmm. um, but this episode seems to work on the buddy system right? which is something about it that I actually do appreciate I mean Willow mm-hmm. and Xander cope with Xander's injury and they have this like it feels like a very lovely I almost mm-hmm. want to say old school Willow and Xander moment yeah. where they're talking in the hospital and Willow's voice is suddenly like season one Willow. She's got this like lilty sort of high, sweet, like we're going back to the softer Mm -hmm. side of Sears. And I'm like, oh, there's something really heartbreaking just in that performance. Yeah. And then they're trying to go back and forth and, you know, be silly together. And they just finally, Xander's Mm -hmm. just like, oh, like, please don't. Like, we can't. We can't yeah. keep going like this. It's really that that is a lovely emotional beat mm-hmm. in this yeah. episode that for me is very emotionally muddy. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have Giles and Dawn as team research, yep. which I appreciate. Here's Dawn doing the thing that we love Dawn doing so much, at holding her own. Mm-hmm. Giles is like, this has nothing to do with anything. Why is this even in the file? And Don is like, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, like, my God. I love yeah, Donna's yeah, research, like, girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. you stand up to, you know, Mr. Giles' exactly. captain research exactly. hat. Like, well done. <laughs> and she's absolutely correct. And then, mm-hmm. of course, Faith and Robin Wood get to meet. And they seem pretty well matched. And mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Contner comes this close to putting little cartoon hearts in Wood's <laughs> eyes. I mean, good <laughs> lord. <laughs> Good Lord, that shot. I'm like, Mm -hmm. all right, all right. Very, very dreamy. But I like seeing them together. And I like the way they talk about what's going on without really talking about what's going on, which feels Mm -hmm. genuine to me and also feels very in character for both of them. 
Mm-hmm. These are people who talk around the issue <laughs> without yes. discussing it. Um, yes. And then my favorite favorite, my favorite couple. <laughs> what is it? What is it that the kids say? The one true pairing. Right. Spike and Andrew. Yeah. Spike mm-hmm. and Andrew bonding over deep fried onions. I mean, come yes. on. Like, come yes. on. Honestly. Andrew and food. There's a whole thesis to be written about Andrew and food and the nourishment of food and oh, what and that Spike does. And he food. Was... I've been talking yeah. about Spike and food since what? Like season two? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Spike mm-hmm. and food. Spike likes being in the world because that's where his stuff is, including <laughs> food. You know, he likes it. Yeah. It's really, it's mm-hmm. great. Spike and food, yeah. Andrew and food. There's a whole thing. There's a whole mm-hmm. thesis to be written about there this is. show and food. There is. And feeding yeah. and eating and a whole, that's a, again, that's a whole other thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I love those two. I love mm-hmm. Spike and Andrew together. Um, yeah, they're very, very fun. And I mean, unsurprisingly, Buffy doesn't have a buddy. Yeah, oh, you know, Buffy. if to be the sa- slayer is to always yeah. be alone, right? Yeah. I mean, if she saves the world, sorry, when she saves the world, <laughs> it'll be Clem. Right. But until then, <laughs> she's stuck with Caleb, apparently. Mm-hmm. Just interesting. I mean, file yeah. under things they almost certainly didn't do on purpose, but Noelle can't stop thinking about. Buffy is suddenly all about the mission. And Caleb is tied to California missions. Mm-hmm. Again, accidental homophone that probably means nothing. But right. there's something, I don't know. There's more more of a parallel between them maybe than mm-hmm. they want or that the show. And of course, he's talking to the first as Buffy. Yeah, so, which is a whole other thing. That's a whole that other is... thing. That's a whole other yeah. thing. Especially since he hates women. Like, he hates women, but he is into the first looking like a woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Does that ever get addressed? I don't remember. I don't know that it does. I don't think it does. I think we just sort of take for granted that the first is Buffy to Caleb. But Caleb hates women. Like, Mm -hmm. that's his whole jam. So Well, yeah, and for most of the relationship, because we see when he first shows up that the first presents as Buffy as a gift, that up until that point, the first had not presented as Buffy mm. to him. Mm-hmm. So this is like a new, the the, pre- the presentation as Buffy is a, a reward, you know, it's, it's an achievement badge, I think, yeah. for Caleb. Um, and he is into that. And the thing is, is that, uh, you know, my experience with misogynists is generally that, yes, they hate women, but they really, really like to interact with them um, because it gives them a way to kind of to vent their hatred and anger and, and whatever. It's uh, it's yeah. activating. It's, it's activating to be around yeah. the thing that you it's hate. it's very very complicated um yeah i love these pairings too i love uh faith and robin wood is one of my favorite things i i cannot believe uh, it, you know eliza dishku has so much chemistry with everyone oh yeah like 
she would have chemistry with a wooden stump, you know, like there's just something about her that she had incredible chemistry with Buffy. She had wonderful chemistry with the mayor. She's got great chemistry with uh, with Robin Wood. You know, um, she's got great chemistry with like every everybody. I can't ima- I can't remember anybody that Faith has been on screen with. Um, that this actress has been on screen with that she hasn't had amazing chemistry with when she was torturing Wesley over on Angel. They had amazing chemistry. Like, it's just, it's nuts. But you have her in this, you know, quick, like, I don't know, two minutes with Robin Wood. And at the end of it, I'm like, oh, you two need to bang that out like bad, you know? And of course, we're (laughs) going to get to that. Um, But I love that. I think it's just, it's so beautifully done. And, And Eliza is so great in this role. Um, She reminds me a little bit, not in the specifics of the way that she acts, but in her ability to pull almost anything off that she is given. She reminds me of Juliet Landau in that way. Mm. Like Juliet Landau as Drew can do, like I am convinced anything, Mm. anything they give her, Juliet Landau can pull it off. And Eliza Dushku, I think is, is a very similar kind of actor. That stuff that when you think about on the page, this could Mm -hmm. have gone any direction. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I this actor pulled true. it off. I think that's yeah. very true. Yeah. 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 And well, uh, Spike and Andrew. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say, I think that that one of the show's greatest strengths is the actors. Oh, I don't. I absolutely. don't know that this show would have worked if it were not for a lot of these these performers and specifically, mm-hmm. I mean, young performers like these are young yeah. people. These are yeah. young actors and they mm-hmm. do an incredible job. Um, yeah, they really do. With what they're given, even when, you know, even when it's not a whole lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, they really are able to pull it off. Um, and, you know, back to Spike and Andrew as a pairing. Um, I, I love all of this. It is, again, short but delightful. Um, I love that Spike um, has this love of the blooming onion. Uh, down to knowing how it's properly prepared. (laughs) I love the idea of Spike up late one night just using a laptop he stole and looking up the recipe to try at home. You know, I mean, like everything that goes into with to him, not just like having looked at and knowing, but memorizing it to the point where he's driving on a bike and can actually explain the entire process to Andrew from memory, how the Bloomin' Onion works. Like that is a love. There was, I remember you talking about Spike and food and that kind of hedonistic delight that yeah. Spike has, yeah. you know, um, and I, I love that um, whenever we see that engaged in his character. Um, I love Andrew, you know, like playing along as the bad cop. I love that food is the thing that he uses to connect with Spike. Um, but when he's the bad cop, you know, we oh, see God. him stumbling through this redemption, relying on these narratives. And of course, Andrew is going to go back to the space in which he is comfortable. Um, and he's screwing it up, but he is, you know, he's trying things on. He's he's kind of shifting around within this space. Um, and it's really, really fun to see him do it. Like, I just really enjoy those pairs. Yeah, Andrew doesn't know who he is if there's not a narrative involved. And I just, I love mm-hmm. it. I love it. Can't yeah. is a four-letter word. <laughs> Run <laughs> is a four-letter le- word. Three-letter word. Yeah, he's just, he's trying so hard, you know, um, to be the uh, to be a partner 
you know, to be in the partnership. And I think that Andrew works best when he is partnered. Like he was part of the trio, you know, he is, he is about that group dynamic about working with people, you know, um, which I really, really like, like, I, I love Andrew as a character. And I think that Tom Lank, again, as we talk about actors and performance, that whatever Andrew may not have in the writing, Tom Lank makes up for in the performance. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we got a couple of things, too, that were a little uncomfortable for me. And again, like I am talking from a place where I am still working through, you know, my own whiteness. So understand that when I talk about these issues of race, that I'm speaking to them from a place that is not necessarily completely informed. But what I see here um, is we have this moment in the bronze um, where uh, one of the potential says you're going to have to shoot us to stop us. And then the, po- the policeman says that doesn't really bother me. He's he's holding this rifle. He cocks the gun and we go immediately to a close up of Rona, the one black person in this room. And I've seen this episode a lot of times. I didn't clock that focus on the black woman when a cop makes a threat with a rifle. This time I clocked it and it chilled my blood. It was just, it hurt, you know? Um, It also isn't great that we open the story with two of our white heroes, Giles and Willow, gaslighting a black man, you know? Um, And so this is one of those things where like, you know, again, like I'm still in my process. I'm very much in the muddy middle of trying to figure all of this stuff out. And I am wrong about these issues very, very often. And again, I would like to say it's a cultural thing. The writers, I don't blame, I don't blame the people who write the stories that reflect us back at us. But I do think that we have a responsibility to be like, oh, my God, like that's hurtful and harmful. And I can see that as a person of color, that would be a very shocking, horrible thing. So I just want to acknowledge that it's there, um, that it was seen um, and that, uh, you know, I'd like for us as we move forward and telling our stories to have a consciousness of that kind of thing, because it was really, really uncomfortable. It sucks and it hurts to see it. It's interesting too how much, you know, our our new, for many many white people, myself included, mm-hmm. our new understanding yeah. of the relationship between police and violence in general. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How much that flavors all of this interaction in this episode with the police mm-hmm. that yeah. these these cops are presented as having gone off the rails because of, you know, all of the, yeah, the again, a bad case of hellmouth itis. Yeah, yeah. All mm-hmm. of the hellmouth stuff. But, you know, this, this, ooh, isn't this like fantasy space stuff is reality for many, yeah. many people and their experience of police, you know, then mm-hmm. now, like this should feel dated. <laughs> like it really yeah. should. The idea. Of, yeah. Police being, you know, a terrifying force mm-hmm. of evil <laughs> should yeah. feel like, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it is interesting to me that we're supposed, we're clearly supposed to see this as like, these cops have gone off the rails, but mm-hmm. it's more, um, that's a more accurate depiction of what policing is and has been for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, for a long time. Um, and that's, you know, and that's why, like, part of the reason why I, you know, I really want to talk about these things and at least at the very least call them out to the best of my ability to see them, which is not uh, by any means, you know, extensive. Because um, like I said, I'm still in the muddy middle of all of that. And I think I will be probably for the rest of my life. Um, 
But it's, I can see how, like, as a person of color, Buffy could be inaccessible, you know, mm-hmm. um, because of a lot of these things that, uh, that, you know, white people can watch it and maybe not even notice, not even see it, not clock it. Um, but as a person of color, it could be hard. And so one of the reasons why I like to call these things out is because I want to say we acknowledge it. There's stuff in Buffy that I think is valuable. I would like for to make that more accessible to more people because I love it and I want to share it. And I don't know if talking about these things makes it more accessible for people who might otherwise feel like this is not made for them. This is not acknowledge their humanity. Um, if the show isn't going to acknowledge that, I would like to try to acknowledge it to the best of my abilities which is usually pretty weak sauce, but it's it's what I have, so I'm going to give it. Um, and uh, and so that I found uh, just just really uncomfortable um, in in the course of this of this episode. Um, but let's go ahead and move through uh, to our favorite part of empty places, which may be a bit of a stretch. Noel, <laughs> what did you like the most in this episode? Um, well, surprising no one. Spike and Andrew discussing road trip food. Mm -hmm. I bet even covert operatives eat curly fries. They're really good. (laughs) They are really good. They're really good. They're really good. Now I want curly fries. Yeah. Yeah. Spike and Andrew forever. Mm -hmm. Forever, forever. Mm -hmm. What about you, Lonnie? What's your favorite part? Oh, for me, it's another pairing. It is Robin Wood and Faith Lehane, who doesn't get a last name in the show, but I get that from the comics. Her last name is Lehane. Um, Just the chemistry and the hotness of the two of them in a space together, how beautiful they are together, how wonderfully they spar back and forth, an incredibly short scene. And yet by the end of it, I'm like, oh, I ship it so hard. So um, yeah, I just love it. I yeah, love the two yeah, of them. you really, really want him to just like take her back to his vamp attack shack because, yes, you know, she would appreciate that. She would appreciate. Yeah. I feel like she I would feel like Faith would appreciate it. the the you know. The I think there'd be everywhere. some fun play there, and you know what, Faith deserves a nice evening. You know, <laughs> like a good, a good evening, banging all that tension out. Absolutely, and you know, we're we're gonna that's gonna happen eventually. Uh, you know, this is a spoiled show, so we're gonna get there. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, follow at Chipperish on Twitter and use the hashtag #StillPretty. Or as a Patreon supporter at any level, you can join the Chipperish Discord group and chat live with other listeners and the hosts. Hey, did you guys know we have a new podcast from Chipperish Media? It is called Endless, and it covers the Sandman comics and TV show hosted by me and DC Comics editor Elisa Quitney. Search for Chipperish Endless in your podcast app of choice. And if you like that stuff at all, it's Neil Gaiman. It's comics. It's amazing. I am absolutely loving this run through Sandman, which I've never read before, but it's freaking amazing. I'm very excited for the TV show. Also, Patreon supporters who chip in at $10 and up get to attend show recordings live. We have a bunch of people with us here right now who are watching us screw up all the stuff because I always get the scripts wrong because I don't read them. I write them and then I don't read them and make sure that they are actually pronounceable. And everybody who hangs out here gets to see me do that every week. Uh, We have live chats before and after the show. So if you haven't pledged your support yet, now is the time. Speaking of supporters, this episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producer.
producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelly, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, if you save the world, I'll come back. We'll have drinks. When? When, I mean, when you save the world. <laughs> this episode of Still Pretty was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, you tell anyone we had this conversation, I'll bite you. We'll be back next time with Touch, the 20th episode of season seven. Until then, it's an onion and it's a flower. I, I don't understand how such a thing is possible. Yeah.